0: Well, so this is one of those podcasts where the basketball world's loss is our gain because uh, we got someone who is recently was working in the league, in the D-League for both the Hawks and then in the Pacers organization with the Mad Ants, but taking some time right now to do some media stuff. And we're all gaining from that with his expertise. Dylan Murphy, how are you, man? Doing well, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So some of my newer listeners may not know who you are. Some of my listeners who've been following nba twitter may know who you are because you actually did a lot of media stuff before you're one of those who transitioned from media into working in basketball so can you just give us a quick idea of what your background is before we talk about you know what you've been seeing this season and and a little bit more pick your brain a little bit more about some of this coaching stuff
1: sure um so basically i was writing for harvard paroxysm back when it was uh on the espn true network uh doing some x's and o's stuff for bleacher report but my background and Basketball was essentially watching like everybody else. Um, played varsity in high school, but you know, didn't play college, didn't manage my college team. But I always wanted to get into basketball, so uh, I decided to start applying for jobs, emailing GMs, video coordinators, anyone I could get my hands on pretty much for a face to face conversation at Summer League. And one of those conversations basically led to a video internship with 4 Wayne. And at the time, 4 Wayne was independent, they weren't owned by the Pacers, so I got to do pretty much everything uh with the staff i mean we only had our head coach connor henry our lead assistant steve gansey who's now the head coach of the mount ants and myself and two other interns so running drills and practice you know setting up all the film running film sessions pretty much everything you could imagine doing as a coach i was doing from the get-go so really thrown into the fire uh, and i did that for three years and we won a championship in my first year lost to uh, the Golden State Warriors, D-League team, Santa Cruz Warriors my second year. We actually beat them my first year. Um, So we had back-to-back finals appearances, and then my third year – not so hot uh didn't have a great year but uh this past season I I scouted the D-League for the Atlanta Hawks and that was obviously the goal coming in was to make it to the NBA so I was really excited about that so
0: yeah I mean I I remember at the D-League showcase we're sitting together and and you could tell me like everything about every player (laughs) it was it was I mean I I've I don't have time to scout the D-League as much I mean when I watch it I'm looking at basically you know how are the guys who are down from the NBA doing and maybe you know the top two or three guys I mean you're. Telling me about like the twelfth man on the Utah Stars. Um, so I wanted to say, I mean, you kind of started basically, you know, you didn't have the basketball background as you said. I mean, I've encountered that too, where people kind of ask who I am, what my background is, and you know, I feel like a little embarrassed to be like, well, you know, I didn't actually like play in college or I didn't actually coach. Like, I don't have an official basketball background. And you know, certainly when I talk to people, especially if they're not familiar with my work, I feel like you know, it's kind of it's hard to get people to take me seriously. you discover that at all when you first got in when people are like all right who the hell is this guy like why are you qualified to be doing this
1: um the biggest thing i found was players and coaches don't care where you came from or what your background is or what you look like it's can you help me become a better player and can you help me as an assistant coach coach this team and for you know really any industry you you learn on the fly and you learn with experience and maybe I didn't play college basketball but I felt very confident in my knowledge of the game and you know over time I I learned the terminology and and how it works on an NBA level um offense and defense and and the more specific stuff but when you're thinking about you know coaching and, and strategy and all of that it really just goes back to sort of your intellectual capacity and just thinking problem solving uh and then obviously with the the coach player dynamic building relationships And, you know, with the players, having them learn how to trust you is really the biggest thing. And improving that you know what you're talking about and that you're not just you know, speaking to speak. And and so when you speak, you have something to say. And that that was one of the biggest things I learned.
0: Yeah. And so that makes sense. But you're, I mean, you're coming in, you know, you didn't know the terminology to begin with, I'm guessing, you know, you, you felt like, okay, you have this video skill, at least you you got the job working as a video intern. So when you first started and what were you, what did you do to say like, Hey, I got to get up to speed here. Like what was your approach uh, just in terms of like what you were doing on a day-to-day basis to try to like get to where you were able to contribute in the ways you're talking about.
1: I think the biggest thing was, was just, uh, understanding where I could contribute and then taking the parts that I didn't understand necessarily or wasn't ready to contribute on and, and learning in that aspect so yeah so
0: so what were those like when you when you first came in what were you like okay here's what I'm good at and here's what I don't know like what were those things
1: all right chopping up video I was pretty efficient at and we didn't have so every NBA team has a uh, sports code and it's basically the software they use to cut up film and then synergy which most people have heard of is uh, basically a giant video library and and all the teams have access to it, and it's really insanely in-depth, the team version of it. Um, And so I really knew how to manipulate video software, but the Mad Ants, because we were independent, we didn't have any video software. So being creative, (laughs) exactly, being creative and understanding or really figuring out a way to cut up film and run film sessions was valuable. And then bringing an analytics perspective to a D-League team was pretty new. So That was something I was able to do. And I did know the basics of terminology, you know, icing a pick-and-roll, floppy horn, stuff like that but maybe more complex stuff i intuitively understood but i couldn't put a name to what i was what i was seeing on the floor and that so that came in the first couple of weeks and then after that you're just sort of off and running
0: yeah and when you like first got in with the coaching, you didn't have any kind of a pre-existing relationship with them i'm guessing right other than just hey i, I did an interview yeah
1: nothing um steve gansey was the one who hired me and um the per- person who suggested or put my name sort of to his mind sebastian Purdy used to write for grant Land. now I was a scout for Oklahoma City. Um, that was basically it. You know, he just, Bassy just kind of put my, uh, resume at to the top of the pile by emailing Steve and I got lucky and it's really an unsatisfying answer for how I got in but it's basically send, yeah. a, send a thousand emails have 999 of them unanswered and then one time get lucky and then from there you just kind of run with the opportunity and ride the wave as long as it lasts so
0: well when you when they interviewed you like do you remember like what that interview was like like what questions they even ask you if you're someone who doesn't necessarily have a basketball background like what were you able to do to try to prove to them like what your skills were.
1: I just pivoted towards what I did know, which was being really good with video stuff, uh, knowing how to cut up film, be creative, especially in light of not having software. And then the analytics stuff, which I know pretty well, and being able to generate my own stats and, and stuff like that. So, you know, having the math background and having the video background, just being able to leverage that. And ultimately, when you come in on the level I came in at, you don't necessarily need a ton of skills other than a willingness to do laundry every day do all the work that (laughs) nobody wants to do and you know having a couple things you can bring to the table and that's i just sort of tried to leverage that into more responsibility and uh go from there
0: well so uh, as you began to uh, evolve in your role i mean what was your favorite thing about coaching like the the tasks that you enjoyed the most like on a day-to-day basis obviously there's a lot of stuff that you're doing that wasn't coaching in the d league it's not you know a glamorous lifestyle as we so often hear but on your day-to-day basis like what were you like hey this is what i look Forward to doing it every day. I love doing. That.
1: Well, I'll, I'll give you a, a quick story. So my first year, we were playing the L.A. Defenders, who are now the South Bay Lakers, I believe, um, the Lakers D-League team. And we decided um, early in the year, you know, our head coach Connor Henry would listen to me when it came to analytics stuff. But seeing as he was an old-school kind of coach, and you know, he's one of my biggest basketball mentors and great coach. Um, but you know, he he played with Larry Bird for a couple seasons in Boston, so he you know he had a, long background in basketball but you know he wasn't totally trustworthy but willing to listen to numbers stuff um and in that game it was the final game of the regular season and the winner got the one seed into the playoffs in the D League. And at that time in the D League, if you got the one seed, then you could choose your opponent in the playoffs for the first round. And then the second seed got oh, to yeah, choose their opponent, and so on and so why forth. Why did they
0: stop doing that, by the way? I don't know why did but, they stop doing that.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure, <laughs> but it was great. We chose the Reno Bighorns, and let me tell you, when we played them in that series, they wanted to kick our butts pretty bad because we had chosen them. And you know, we need, we needed a miraculous comeback in game one. We were down eight points with a minute thirty to go, and we came back in one. And then we won a tight one in game 2 and it's two out of 3 and that was it so um but anyway so with the Lakers or the Defenders game um I talked to our coach all, to coach Henry all season about how you know it was my belief based on the numbers I'd studied that it was better not to foul uh excuse me better to foul when you're down 3 points uh, at the end of a game you know 10 seconds left do you foul do you not foul um and so
0: oh you when, when you're up 3
1: points uh, excuse me right up up 3 points end of the game you're on defense do you foul do you not foul yeah. right so studying the numbers of the D league and the trends of shooting at and of games i had calculated that it would be to our advantage if we could target the right person to foul and at the time terrence williams was in the d league and he was on the defenders their best player and i know he didn't have a great nba career but he was a tough d league player um, but he was only shooting about 65 percent from the line and there's about 10 seconds left in the game and coach henry looks at me down the bench and this is deciding the you know one seed do we foul and i said <laughs> the, i said the, yes the,
0: this the inspirational music starts playing as Seriously. He, like, turns his head and in Seriously. slow motion <laughs> to look at you at the end of the bench.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he he asked me, "Do we foul?" And we fouled him, and he broke both free throws, and we won the game. So you know, like doing little things like that that contribute to winning. You know, you put together a scouting report and you make a game plan decision that's you know maybe not typical or a little unorthodox, and it completely works. You know, that sort of satisfies the competitor in you. You know, Jarnell Stokes was in the D League uh, for Sioux Falls Miami's team, and he was a beast. I mean, he won the MVP, and he nobody could stop. Him just because all the really tall, skilled bigs are already in the NBA. So, at 6'8 and built like a truck, really nobody could, could do anything with him. Um, so, we decided to fully front him for one game. And what ended up happening is he scored like 20 points in the first 10 minutes. And our game plan totally didn't work. So, you know, you have to sort of have some humility with all of it. Um, and especially as someone who, you know, I feel like my greatest strength as a coach is tactically game planning. Um, when you have a game plan and it just completely blows up in your face, understanding that you might have have a great game plan or strategy or whatever it is but it's not always going to work and so being able to adjust and, and just have some humility about all of it is is important for sure
0: yeah well at what point are you are you like okay this isn't working like where are you like and maybe sometimes it might be all right the players aren't executing it but we're not getting into the right positions at what point do you say okay we got to change up the strategy or at what point are you like hey you know we need to just do this plan better and what are some of the signs you look for when you're making that decision
1: yeah you know there's there's a ton of stuff uh one of the biggest things that i didn't realize until i started coaching was you know trying to be cognizant of your players reaction to what's going on so you know let's just say we have a game plan where we're gonna deep drop pick and rolls uh go over in the middle on the side we're gonna blue i say blue and not ice just because that's the way i first learned it but a lot of people say ice um we're gonna blue the sides um and then we're gonna. Let's say below below the break break blew into a trap. Um, but you know something looks like oh our big's not being aggressive enough or this or that. But then your big comes to you and says hey I can't do this it's not working. You know in my mind I say well just be more aggressive. But if he's so set on well I really can't do this you have to then adjust even if you don't think it's the right decision because if you lose your player or players with your game plan it doesn't matter how good your game plan is if they're not bought into it. So having that piece of it too um, really being able to listen to your players who are on the floor and experiencing what's going on um, but there definitely is a a balance with you know you don't want to bail too early um and depending on how much trust the head coach has some players will give it a little more time but if your coach you know especially the head coach but you know assistants too if there's not enough trust built there they're going to be more likely to feel like the team needs to abandon the game plan quicker so in that that all that factors into it really
0: If you had to just say I mean, you, you watch a, a ton of basketball obviously you have coached a lot of basketball now do teams just in general change too quick or not change quickly enough.
1: I, I would say they they change too quickly. Um, you know, I tweeted this out the other day, but Steve Clifford had a quote after a playoff game last year or two years ago, I think it was. You know, I can't. I think they were oh, yeah. down two zero to Miami or something, and they were saying, "Are you going to have a game plan shift this and that?" He said, "You know, we just need to do our game plan better. It's the right game plan." You know, for instance, there's a, a pick and roll coverage we used to call "squeeze," which is let's say you're um, guarding Dirk Nowitzki and he's setting all the ball screen. Um, so what what we would do is our big would Get extremely tight to Dirk, and then our guard yeah. would go two under. Uh, so under both his big and Dirk. Uh, the idea being right. that if Dirk were to pop, well, he'd pop to nowhere because our big stays attached completely, right? And so, like, yeah, if you're just not doing that right, then it's not working. But the game plan is correct, right? You're stopping Dirk from getting threes. But if he's still getting threes off, it has nothing to do with the the pick and roll coverage. It has to do with your big not staying attached. Um, so, so that you know, that's something you have to consider. But to me, you know, it, it's really tough to. Say, but I would say, um, yeah, 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 that. that that's what i would say about it so
0: <laughs> yeah because i think if you if you can't execute especially if you're not executing it and you're screwing up and, and making game plan mistakes if you can't execute what the plan was beforehand and you already practice, it's to switch to something new you're probably going to execute that even worse exactly totally and that that's
1: the thing that you know has to be understood is that especially for you know a playoff series where it comes more into play when you're in the regular season you're making fewer night-to-night adjustments because if you're trying to flip coverages every day it's you know you, would you rather be 50% good at six coverages or 100% good at three coverages so you know most teams on a night-to-night basis really aren't making massive changes um, so you know, the, to me it's just you know you do what you do well and you, you keep trying to execute it but again going back to what I said before that you know you have to realize too that if your coverage is the right coverage but for whatever reason your player just isn't doing it right you either need to get a new player in there or if nobody can do it right then maybe your genius coverage isn't so genius so
0: yeah and I'm sure there's a feeling too that we've got all these sunk costs with this so maybe we're gonna stick with it or it's it's been successful throughout the year for us or something so maybe you can be too slow to change there but i agree with you i mean it's if you can't get the guys to execute whatever it is you're doing i I remember even my old high school coach he would be like i don't care what play you run just make sure you all run the same play right like as as long as you're in something that everyone is doing and everyone knows and is executing it properly you always have a better chance than if you're doing what is the right thing in theory but you know no one's actually doing it you know it, it's all it all looks great on the whiteboard but then if you're not executing it on the floor what the difference is so did i uh, did i interrupt your stoke story were you done with that did you, did, you, did you want to get back to that no i mean you know because i sorry go ahead no i because I, I, I it sounded like you were gonna say uh what what actually worked to stop him but i think you left off with just like yeah he was just killing us <laughs> yeah <laughs> so no, no nothing We'll let you go go back to get yeah get the the uh the triumph at the end if there is one this you know when you, when you're down 30 points
1: at half, I don't know, Stokes is 11 of 12 from the field and you know 10 for 11 from the free throw line. At that point, it's you know there aren't many changes you can make. They're going to swing the game, but uh I can't remember what change we made or anything. But uh I'm pretty sure it didn't work because we were 0- <laughs> we were 0-6 against soup Falls that year. So uh you know we had some tr- we had some troubles.
0: What does that Miami team do to develop guys? So I mean, I think they probably of all the teams to me they've had the most success of just creating players. I out of that Sioux Falls team?
1: Uh, I would say a couple things. The first thing is that all the players they acquire fit their culture Um, and their culture is, as everybody knows, you know, you work your tail off, you improve, but more than that, the players that they bring to their D-League team are physical, they're tough, they play super hard, and that sort of covers up a lot of other things, you know, deficiencies, maybe a guy can't shoot, uh, maybe, you know, he's not the best driver, but I'll give you an example. Um, Okara White at the beginning of last season uh, in the D-League, you know, wasn't really shooting a great from three probably low 30s um but as a sort of playmaking four in the d league really fours are threes for the most part um yeah you know as a as a playmaking four he was just attacking the rim relentlessly he was leading the league in rebounds even though he's only six weight six eight and he you know looks like he weighs a buck 80 with his shirt wet so you know just the just the toughness and the energy he played with you know that that was the kind of guy that they always bring in you know they made a trade trade for a point guard named patrick miller guys built again like a truck a point guard played super hard he was a backup for the texas legends they acquired him and then all of a sudden he's averaging 25 and 10 you know uh briante weber who's you know floated in and out of the league you know one of the best defenders in the d league i've seen in the last couple of years it's just this culture of the style of player they have and on top of that you know they work the hardest they work their players the hardest um you know every time we played them it just felt like they're just taking a hammer to you constantly with the effort and the energy and it's really difficult to match and then on and on top of all of that um one of the things i love about Eric Spolcher who's you know probably my favorite coach outside of pop would be that you know the way they move the ball you know everyone says oh the Spurs move the ball they swing the ball the Warriors win the ball sure but what I love about the way Miami moves the ball is that it's just changing sides constantly into five six seven pick and rolls in one possession and while maybe their actions aren't as clever as some things you might see from a uh, Brad Stevens side out or Monty Williams for me was one of the best uh, play drawers that I'd seen. But um, it just when you guard six pick and rolls in one possession, the chances of you having a breakdown on defense are extremely high. And so the ball was just swinging constantly in and out of pick and rolls that eventually you gave up something. And so that, that sort of mentality of just getting the ball through hands, changing sides of the floor so quickly, really on top of their toughness, may, makes, makes that whole culture and team on the D-League. And the NBA level really hard to guard.
0: Yeah, you know that hadn't occurred to me, but really that Heat team—they led the league in drives last year. It was all about drive and kick, and they were a fun team to watch. So yeah, I, I guess that is pretty difficult to stop. it when you think about it, um so you're talking about so, some of your favorite things that, about coaching. What was it just generally like being in the D League, and, and especially because you said you've experienced like highs of winning a championship, you're in the final series in the D League, and then you know you had a, a year where things didn't go so well. Uh, I mean, especially that last year like what was it like it's hard enough in the nba keeping a losing team kind of on the same page is that something you guys really struggled with or were you able to kind of keep everyone together in, in that last year yeah
1: you know I, one of the things i always looked at you know tanking in general um before i got into coaching is um you know well obviously strategically it makes the most sense right you're doing poorly go for the highest traffic rebuild your team so forth but as a coach you know when we were struggling and especially i guess it's different because we started out well and then we just sort of fell off a cliff Um, but when you're really struggling you can't get out of a nosedive it it takes a toll on everybody you know and you just the energy is down people's desire to work is down and you know i think that for me it was very instructive on where my faults were as a coach and where i needed to improve and you know it it, it's really a drain but you know on the on the on the flip side you know you're doing what you love and you have to take to take that into account and you know really come in every day you know coach henry used to say you just got to turn turn your brain on for two hours you go to practice just turn it on turn yourself on for two hours and then give it everything you got and then we can relax a little bit and go back to the office and start you know planning things and, and doing all that but um, you know on the flip side also of the losing when we were winning I mean there wasn't a I haven't had a better high than that I mean we after the showcase in my first year we didn't lose a single game at home we were undefeated in the playoffs and you know it was it was an unbelievable ride and something that I'm never gonna forget I mean I still have my D league championship ring open in a box next to my bed so you know, it's that that's something that you strive for and you know I was really lucky that in my first year I walked into a championship team
0: uh, you mentioned that you like that last year you felt like brought out some flaws that you had in your own coaching like when you're doing that self-evaluation like what, it, what did you see and, and how, how did it reveal itself to you of like oh yeah like this is something I need to work on
1: you know when you're making game plan and you present it to the team and you know if it was your scouting report so each assistant gets uh we have a scouting schedule and then you know if it's this game or this team it's my scout and if it's this game Game or whatever it's other assistant scouts so when it's my scout I'm you know running shoot around in the game planning portion of shoot around and any part of practice the day before and you know just the body language of how the guys are responding to you you know you say something you say hey we're going to guard this this way and they just sort of lackadaisically say hey, whatever you know and that then you know what do you do in that moment you know when a when a player sort of defies you you know wh- what's the line where you yell at them but you're not the head coach so how do you handle that and you know when we're winning that wasn't a problem you know when every decision we made felt like it was the right decision and it worked the players implicitly trust you but then when every decision you make regardless you're losing that trust starts to disappear and you know that can be really tough to handle um and how everybody deals with it and it's on the players to keep a positive attitude they're professionals And it's on the coaches to keep the positive attitude and keep the group together um you know one thing coach henry also always used to do is he referred to our team as the group never as the team or the players or the coaches how is our group feeling how is our group doing and so that, that sort of created that mentality of, you know we're all in it together and uh, you know that but that period of self-reflection can be tough you know to say you're failing at something and you know you don't know what to do to get out of it or you know, can be really difficult to deal with
0: well and especially i'm sure you were feeling like hey wow maybe i'm pretty good at this thing like i know i went into a championship team i lucky but yeah you know i'm cont- contributing to this like maybe I'm, I'm pretty good at this and then to have like that bad of a year was that kind of like for you to feel like oh maybe like you know it must have like hurt kind of your self-image a little bit as you're being like oh well maybe i don't have as much of an effect in the stuff as I thought I did totally totally
1: did and you know that that was tough to deal with um, to realize that you know maybe I wasn't up to snuff quite yet and you know I'm, I was still a young coach and I'm still pretty young for the profession so um, definitely have a lot of room to grow but you know, that was that was tough to deal with for you know a, a lot of different ways but you know it was also instructive in making me realize what I was good at and what I wasn't so it did clarify for me okay I really am good at this part of coaching but I'm really not great at you know this or that or whatever so, you know, and, and one of the things for me is, you know, I was, I'm t- t- about to turn 28. Um, but, you know, in my final year, I was 26, uh, heading into 25, 26. So, you know, a bunch of our players were my age or older. So how do I convey to them a sense of respect when I'm younger? You know, how do you deal with that? And, you know, for me, I realized towards the end when it was a little bit too late, you know, building trust on that personal level. You know, we'd have one-on-one, every coach had their own players and you have one-on-one film sessions with them on top of uh, your regular team film sessions and, you know, building trust that way and talking to guys on the side and you know and non-basketball stuff and just building relationships that way um as opposed to you know if i tried to be a big authoritative tom thibodeau like nobody would listen to me but if i you know just come in quietly and you know just be even keeled and, and do it that kind of way you know more to my personality i realized that that is where i could have the most success with myself
0: so last question on this because i want to get to uh, some of your observations on the league so far this season but you mentioned this scenario where you know let's uh, and seem like kind of what you're describing is okay you say hey you know Know, you're, you didn't you execute this coverage correctly or something in practice and the guy's like yeah okay whatever you know so it makes like some kind of a you know not defiant comment but kind of a sarcastic comment that like you know i'm just don't really want to be here or you know a little bit kind of disrespectful someone says something like that to you in practice like what are you thinking like, like what are your options as a coach and i'm sure you know that's something that probably happens all the time just being around people you know they get upset sometimes they you're losing or they're not really in the best mood that day or whatever but when you kind of get a little bit of that pushback like what are your options as a coach how do you decide like how you want to handle that or or do you just kind of let it go sometimes
1: yeah you know i think there are definitely a few ways you can handle it first being you know you can try to stamp it out immediately by you know raising your voice and getting a little bit more intense but you know that also has the chance of completely backfiring and causing the guys or maybe that one guy who's you know being a little bit off today to cause other guys and it's a sort of leak around that hey like you know screw this guy yelling at us for no reason the other way is you can just kind of give it a a, give them a light ribbing and just say hey like come on like let's go you know just a little bit something like that and the third way is you can just ignore it and let it go and you know keep on business as usual um you know but you have to mix it up right because if you're if they know they can just walk all over you they will you know but if if you're too authoritative you know that that grinds on people right who goes to work and likes being yelled at by their boss 24 7 right nobody so and and that's the thing you have to consider too you know
0: jimmy butler exactly
1: yeah (laughs) but you know it's a it's a workplace environment like anything else Except in this workplace environment you're with each other all the time so you know you have to understand that maybe now is not the time to create a blow up but at the same time you know maybe now is the time to have a little bit for for me I found the best was just sort of a maybe a little bit of a hey come on and then take them maybe after practice ended off the side be like you know what are you seeing that you know you didn't you didn't seem to react the way I thought you would to us guarding you know pick and roll with these two guys this way like what are you seeing out there and uh you know really just trying to engage that way
0: I would imagine too, that that's where having players on the team who are more veteran, who have the respect of the rest of the players can be important because, you know, maybe at that point is where you can get some motivation from the other players. And so not because like every single one of those points, it seems like is, you know, it's a little risky for a coach, right? Anytime you have to get the players to do something that they don't want to do or react to someone's being sarcastic, that's like a chance where things can kind of go wrong or people can get upset. And so if you have it seems like if you have fewer of those moments, because you have veterans on your team who are telling people that instead it it makes things a lot easier completely uh you know on that for
1: us um my second year we acquired dante jones um halfway through the year uh and he was this is before he got called up to the Cavs, and then was with them on and off, but uh, you know we were going through a little bit of a lull, uh, and he got came to us, and you could just see in his professionalism and the way he just took practice very seriously, took film very seriously, was asking questions, was locked in. This is a guy who played in the NBA ten years, had no reason to still be in the D League anymore, but just loved the game and wanted to keep playing, and you know he just brought a, a sense of you know you're professional, you take this seriously, and just by his example, other guys followed, and sometimes you need that, and. You you know we also had another guy Chris Porter who played at Auburn and was on cover of SI you know back oh, in yeah. the day wow, and that. uh CP you know he um you know he led with just whatever he said went and he always followed our coach and so that in itself had the players fall in line with him and you know the players respected him because even though he was getting up there in years you know 37 38 years old still being in the D league but he would make huge play after huge play at the end of a game drawing charges getting tough rebounds you know he wasn't putting in 30 points anymore but you know just sacrificing his body constantly preaching defense and you know the guys respected that and they followed him you know there was there was one time we're at the showcase and um you know we're in a drop and middle pick and rolls uh and cp just hard showed and he had a tendency to do that sometimes just because he liked to be aggressive and coach henry just lit him up in the middle of the gym and you know how it is at santa cruz you were at the showcase you can hear everything in there yeah so yeah it's just
0: this big echo chamber that's like this prefab like aluminum building that they that they built on site
1: totally yeah and and coach henry just lit into him completely in front of everybody in front of every nba scout the whole gym and cp just sat there and took it said nothing it said yes coach no attitude nothing and that's the kind of tone that when you have someone do that well then how can i be a rookie who you know barely plays or whatever give any lip or how can i be a second year guy that's trying to make the league knowing he played in the league has played overseas for 15 years if this is how he handles his business well maybe this is how i should handle my business so that's really invaluable
0: All right, we'll get to Dylan's observations on the current season right after this word. The Wish app is one that I hadn't heard of until pretty recently. I have a buddy who's involved with the company, and so I checked it out, and I realized that it's a top five rated app on both the Apple App Store and on Google Play. The reason why is you pay 60 to 90% less than what you'd pay in a store. There's no markups, no overpay. They make it easy to shop fashion, shoes, electronics, kitchen gadgets, and more directly from the makers. You can either search for stuff that you're looking for or just browse the app and you'll find some amazing deals that's what i did if you can wait a few weeks for delivery you'll get lower shipping prices than almost anywhere else and their algorithms are amazing just to help you find stuff that you didn't even know that you wanted i mentioned it's a top five app overall it's the number one shopping app on the app store and on google play highest rated mobile shopping app in the world and of course the now official mobile shopping partner and jersey sponsor of the la Lakers. right now for our listeners wish is offering all New users, a free gift with purchase. And even if you already use Wish, all of my listeners can get 20% off your purchase by using my code Capspace. Easy to remember. We talk about Capspace all the time in the program. Download and open your Wish app, find things you didn't even know you needed, and enter my code Capspace, 20% off your purchase. So, just in a general sense, you mentioned SPO. Who are the coaches in the league? Maybe people, ones that people don't talk about as much because you mentioned Monty Williams is having a good plays as well, but of guys who just really stand out to you as being particularly creative coaches.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest innovator we've seen in the last couple of years has been Brad Stevens, um, and that's an obvious one, but um, you look at some of the late-game stuff he's done, especially, uh, you know, there's this one that everybody copies now, which is you have a guy uh, start at the opposite free-throw line, so Isaiah Thomas, in uh, Boston's case, on a side-out, and then um, you'll have your big set of step up which is basically a ball screen that's flat, um, so instead of being on one side or the other, you're just basically directly behind the defender, um, and he just comes sprinting into that and then be able to get stuff off of that Um, another one which you see is where they'll throw they'll set a flare screen to the opposite side and they'll throw that long cross court pass to the opposite corner on the side out and so you really see those a lot more uh, frequently across the NBA and uh, that's really just because he started doing that it worked a bunch of times and then other teams were like hey this works let's do it. Um, you know, and one of the things yeah, I mean,
0: that he had, he had that two, three zone at the end of games too, yep. the, that he would go to every once in a while as well. I don't know if he still does that anymore. The they yep. are probably expecting it now, but that was, that was one that like a couple of years ago, they were doing a lot of,
1: yeah, you know, and that works really well. And there's really no good way to get around that. So, um, you know, one of the problems that I find with NBA coaches in general, um, look, you know, now they're health, you know, great coaches, but I feel like the league is a little bit too much of a copycat league, you know, because for a while, the Celtics really had a big advantage at the end of games because the stuff that they're drawing was so creative and different Um, but now it's really teams are copying them and they know how to defend that stuff so you you don't really see teams being ahead of the curve uh, in terms of what they're drawing on the floor you know so floppy is a very popular action you see which is basically you have two guys guards start under the basket and then pin downs coming out to either wing and the guards can come out off the pin downs on either wing and then whichever side the ball goes to the big who's on the opposite side comes and sets a pick and roll now that's your classic floppy action but you know how does how much does that really work unless you have a, a steph curry or clay thompson flying off a pin down where you're so scared of this guy shooting a three that it's going to cause your defense to bend right because the guy is really sprinting to the wing away from the basket and that's a tough shot to hit
0: so yeah. you know- i never liked floppy because i always i feel like it just takes too long to set up as well and then if they just switch it or they'll know it's it's obvious when it's coming too uh and then it takes too long to set up and then if they switch it or where they just have i don't know what this call but you'll see a lot of times like they'll just get each defender will just kind of wait for the guy to come out on the side like you know they won't necessarily like yep. lock and trail with them and so if they get denied on that play then there's you're at seven on the shot clock and now you just have to create something at the end so i, I never really cared for it because it just it takes too long and it's kind of too obvious what's coming unless you're then able to get some wrinkles out of it where you know you can take advantage of teams knowing that it's coming but i don't especially teams that don't have the great shooters and don't run it a lot. I agree with you. I don't think it's that effective, but right. and, you know, I'm sure they all have numbers on how often it actually does work.
1: Yeah, you know, every every team keeps numbers on how well their plays work and um, on some level that's going to guide what plays you are calling more versus others. You know, I have had this debate with, you know, a bunch of my coaching colleagues all the time of whether teams run those plays because they work or do they run them because they're just that's what people run. And to me it seems like they run run it just because that's what people run. And so that, you know, to me that's frustrating that you know you're you're not being creative with your offense and you're not innovating and coming up with new things but at the same time having been in the coaching world there isn't a lot of time to be redrawing everything all the time you set your offense in training camp, yeah you come up with plays sometimes on the fly on the road after practice here and there but you know there's not a lot of practice time during the season so you can't be installing a ton of new stuff uh, during the year now obviously you'll make some changes throughout the year to freshen things up but generally your base playbook comes from training camp so you know I understand it on that level but you know, I, I do appreciate it when you see one team come up with a play and then everybody copies that play. Uh, you know, part of the thing I'm doing over you know my new blog, pardon the the plug, but at uh, the Basketball Dictionary. Oh, we we're,
0: we're gonna get to that. <laughs> in fact, I've been remiss in not mentioning it. yet. But no problem. Yeah, um,
1: but one of the things I like trying to show over at the at the dictionary is that like all these concepts and terms and everything is across the entire NBA. You know, if you ask me to find uh, you know an example of a team running floppy or horns or wedge or or flex action or a loop or a zipper or whatever you know you can find everybody doing everything and so you know the Spurs for instance they run like six plays they really don't run a lot of stuff but they just run it really well so you know that always how much do you innovate versus how much do you execute your stuff really well and so you know that's I don't think there's a right answer but you know I tend to lean towards you know try to innovate as much as you can
0: you know I think one of the underrated things about a team like Golden State or or San Antonio is that having smart players is so important in the NBA because you don't have that that much practice time and so if you can explain something once to guys or put something in new in a shooter on and trust that Andre Iguodala or Draymond Green is going to be able to execute that you know Absolutely. because they're just smart guys or even come up with something new during a game and just say hey we're going to do this and like just from a verbal instruction not having to go go through practicing it a million times so you have all this muscle memory to get guys to be able to do that and execute I think is just an enormous advantage.
1: Yeah I mean uh, an example that comes to mind from the finals last couple years um you know i'm sure everyone has recognized how the the Cavs basically have made every effort to get Steph Curry switched onto LeBron James in end of game situations yeah so come whoever curry's guarding will come set a screen for on LeBron's man and Golden State tries to avoid that switch by having curry hard show which is basically he lunges out at LeBron and forces him to take a back dribble around curry's arm and in that time it gives LeBron's man time to recover and then Steph recovers back to his um and so LeBron is so smart though that when he sees that they'll either look to split it and get Curry lunging out too early and showing his hand too early or he goes into the arm of Curry and draws a foul right and so having players that are able to adapt on the fly like that without you having to change a play you know because if a player doesn't understand that what do I have to do as a coach? I have to burn a timeout then I have to say hey LeBron look to split this look to jump into his arm and draw a foul right but when you have players that are able to do that on the fly you're not having to waste these massive timeouts or you know make massive changes to game plans and players are just intuitively making right decisions based on what the defense or the offense is doing
0: back to coaches anyone else you mentioned brad Stevens? anyone else that you really like what they've been doing yeah i think Dave
1: Fizdale is doing a really good job uh, in memphis you know obviously the change in their style has been evident over the last year and a half you know they still obviously go with the grit and grind but you know gasol is stretching out to the three-point line and you know they've had a good start to the year with a couple good wins but really just to me you look at a team and you look at the quality of the players on that team and then you look at how well they play you know statistically or with the eye test and if they're outperforming what you really any logical NBA fan thinks they should be doing really that's the coach who's improving that now you know most teams the coach is only making you slightly better or slightly worse it's really not a huge shift but sometimes you see a big difference I mean I don't think anybody really looking at Boston's roster last year would have thought that they were such a good team you know I mean yeah there's some good parts here and there but I mean, you really only had one player that could create off the dribble and he was tiny and they were still a juggernaut for most of the year. Maybe they weren't, you know, quite up to the Cavs level, but it was basically Isaiah Thomas and a bunch of role players. And so to be as good as they were really speaks highly of Stephen.
0: Who do you think in the league are the players that are the hardest to guard from a coaching perspective, right? Like, so you've got your normal thing that you do every night, as you mentioned, can't change that much during the course of of the regular season. What players in the league just like make you change what you're going to do the most?
1: Uh, I mean, the the hardest players to guard are, you know, LeBron and Durant and probably Westbrook and those guys who just can get to the basket at will. But, you know, I don't mean to disrespect them. Um, You know, I think they're the top three players in the league or at least three of the top five. But um, when you have a guy like Steph Curry, who makes you change your pick and roll coverage and takes it three feet above the three-point line, that just warps your entire defense. You know, there have been great isolators in the history of the NBA, and that doesn't mean that they can be stopped. Just because I have the technical game plan answer to LeBron doesn't mean I can still stop him because you can't. But Curry physically causes you to change your game plan coverages. Uh, You know, when your pick and roll coverage comes three feet above the three-point line, you know, one of the guiding principles of of, of being a help side defender and pick and roll is you have to be up the floor. You can't be stuck on the baseline. That way if you're making a tag on a roller for instance you're not getting pinned at the rim but if they're setting a pick and roll at 32 feet and now your tag is coming at the elbow instead of the the second hash well you're leaving the guy in the corner wide open and you know you're so disconnected from him that if he cuts or moves you know you can't see him so it's really stretching your help assignments and that's what makes you know him so tough it's not necessarily that he can shoot the ball that he drags you out so far and spreads you out that you know in the moments in pick and roll when you're having to watch two people instead of them being on 10 feet either side of you they're 18 feet on either side of you and it's impossible to guard
0: anyone else that yeah i mean and stuff i always felt that that was one of the biggest thing that's underrated about him is and why the warriors are always so good when he's out there but is there anyone else maybe that people don't realize as much that makes you change what you do because i think that you make a great point there where you know there's always been guys who will isolate and while you can't stop them and you have to you have to do stuff that you don't want to do whether it's double teaming or whether it's you know bringing a guy over on the strong side or whether it's fronting or or whatever it is like that stuff that there are enough players in the league who are similar that you practice it it's something that you're gonna do you know probably every other night or something because there are a lot of great players in the league but for curry you know there aren't that many other i mean is there anyone else really that has that effect is there anyone who's that good of a shooter that teams do the same thing or is it just him
1: yeah i mean i think it's basically just him maybe james harden too um i would say the other one Uh, but sort of in a different direction
0: would would you put lillard in that category he takes a a lot of deep threes or teams just not as worried about him
1: yeah you know I think there's not as much of a worry. there's still a huge worry you know for sure but I think when you know that a guy's shot selection is suspect at times you're willing to live with him being super aggressive and sort of shoot himself or his team out of a game and I think Lillard can be a little susceptible to that at times I don't you know look I would love Damian Lillard on my team but Curry the differences and Harden they can take horrific shots and make them at a clip better than above average players and less difficult shots. So even though they're taking bad shots, there's nothing you can do about it. But, you know, the guy that when you were asking that question that came to mind was John Wall, which even though obviously he's not a good shooter, you know, the common assumption is when you face a a bad shooter, you go under on pick and rolls and you force him to shoot perimeter shots, right? And that's what San Antonio did to LeBron in the finals. um, And he really had trouble dealing with it. But a guy like John Wall, he's so quick that when you go under a pick and roll, he can beat you to the other side with his quickness, even if you go under So, you know, when he gives you a little hesitation or a little shoulder or something, and that sets you off balance, he can beat you to that spot on the other side of the pick, even if you're going under to meet him at a lower spot on the floor. And then once he gets ahead of steam going, he's so athletic that you going under is irrelevant. All you're really doing is giving him time to build speed. So it's why you actually do see more often than you would think teams going over on John Wall and being a little bit more aggressive because they're trying to stay connected and stay in contact to stop him from building that momentum because you go under and then he just all of a sudden now you're giving him six feet of space to just sprint at the basket and then he's obviously got such great passing vision so tough to handle in the
0: opener he killed the sixers on on exactly what you're talking about as well or he would fake like he was going to go towards the pick the guy would get unattached to him to go under and then as he was leaning he would just cross over and go to the same side and blow right by the guy too just because again he he was disconnected um anybody look significantly improved to you oh sorry go ahead no i just uh just a quick story
1: on that what we're just talking about which i just thought of which is uh, we're playing Sioux Falls again, and Larry Drew II was uh, their point guard for a number of years. I think he's back with them for this season, too. But he's extremely quick with the ball in his hands. And uh, we had a guy, Matt Bolden, who was on our team from Gonzaga, um, and he was guarding Larry Drew. And when you're in pick and roll as a guard, your first and only job is to make sure he doesn't reject the screen and make sure he uses the screen. Yeah. Unless you're blowing it and then you're asking him to reject it. Well, Matt was guarding Drew, and he came into a timeout, and he said to me, You know, he had gotten beaten, you know, he had gotten crossed up and allowed drew to reject the screen and matt was like look i know i'm supposed to force him over the screen but he's so quick i can't like i'm trying but i just can't and that's that's the other issue with john wall is like you want to push him over the screen but he's so quick and such a good ball handler that sometimes it's just really tough to do that so so
0: anybody in the league to you that looks like a lot better this year so far like guys who've really added to their game i know it's early it's especially with shooting it's tough because like more players are taking threes maybe a guy's just hot for a week or something but just in terms of their skill level their bodies like anyone who sticks out to is like whoa this guy got a lot better over the offseason
1: yeah, I mean this is going to be an obvious answer but um, I mean, obviously Giannis Antetokounmpo has had an amazing start but the biggest thing that I see with him is that he's sort of figured out how he can finish without really being the most physical guy and getting clear shots to the rim you know obviously he's not um, you know as quick as a John Wall or you know as physical as a LeBron going to the basket but he sort of now knows how to let leverage his length to where all of that becomes irrelevant you know you see these layups where he gets the ball just at the rim and he just puts a little spin on it and it curls over the front of the rim or he's just reaching over to shoot the ball and he's really figured out how to finish in a, a manner that has just enough physicality but relies on what his biggest advantage is which is his athleticism his length and really nailing down that touch you know I always think about you know if you name the best players in the league two of them really can't shoot considerably well which is LeBron and Russell Westbrook right so what are they doing that's so advantageous? Well, they figured out how to finish at the rim. Westbrook by being a, just a freak explosive athlete, and LeBron being that, but also being six eight, right? And Anunnakumpo has now figured out. Okay, my way of doing this is with my length, and he's really learned how to get those touch shots in within the six foot range, which can be very difficult when you're under pressure or contest physicality. So you know, to me
0: that sure. that I mean, the league shoots forty percent on those shots. You know, I mean, so but yeah, he's he he can take off from six feet away and it's a layup you know which it's not necessarily for, for other people I, I agree with you i think he's playing with incredible patience as well when he gets the ball in the lane he's he's realizes that you know he doesn't have to just like fly at the rim 100 miles an hour you know if he wants to turn his back to goal and then do an up fake and then he can step around guys and he's got such length that if everyone's kind of at a standstill it, the advantage is his you know so he he's got all this patience now and you mentioned too i think just the way he's shooting on kind of floater range type of shots to, to develop that touch is really impressive. Um anyone who looks to maybe have fallen off a, a little bit to you so far? You know, I
1: I expected a bigger step from Brandon Ingram. Um I'm not, you know, granted again like you said, 3 games in and but, you know, there're just a couple possessions where I see him isolating on guys that are slower than him or not as big as him and he just hasn't quite figured out how to leverage his athletic
0: advantage and his length yet. And so given well, that, so, he's... so my, my, my argument with him is that at least athletically, I agree with you in the length, but athletically that he doesn't actually have that an advantage. Like that was why I was a little bit lower on him in the draft process. Than some people. And people, I think he's still going to be a fine player, but to talk about him as like being a huge score in the league, I felt like he doesn't have the type of elite athleticism that you need at that position to really beat your guy one-on-one. What do you think of that? Yeah.
1: You know, I, I wouldn't disagree with that you know I think also a lot of it is a strength component which you know is obvious that there there's again with Giannis it's the same thing where he can take contact now and not get bumped off his spot completely yeah whereas Ingram is still at the point where he gets bumped on his way to the rim and it throws him off you know one of the drills we would always do is a guy would come in for a floater and we just give him a little shove or a little whatever you know at the rim you come in for a layup we hit you with a pad just being able to maintain that air balance and finish you know is, is a difficult thing you have to have a certain level of strength and you know obviously he's not there yet but i i just i guess what's more disappointing is like on the mismatches especially if he's gonna you know play some stretch four and you know some three and have some undersized guys on him you know right now if i'm game planning against him i'm gonna put a smaller quicker guy on him and dare him to shoot over or post me up or any of that and you know i don't think he has an answer for that right now
0: yeah for him to fulfill expectations one of two things is gonna have to happen uh one is that we talked about he's gonna have to get more athletic and become a better finisher. Or the other one is, you know, the ball's just gotta go in the basket for him more as a shooter. And you know, he hasn't, despite the fact that his shot looks okay, I think he's comfortable getting it off. You know, he just has not been able to be efficient with his jump shots or
1: yeah, and here's the thing I'll say on the shooting, which is shooting numbers are very to me untrustworthy because sure. you look at a guy and his shooting numbers does not encapsulate the quality of the shots he's taking. For instance, a Steve Novak, right, who's taking, you know, in his heyday, seven threes game let's say and they're all pretty heavily contested um you know maybe some open ones but they're all feet set spot up right whereas like kevin durant is taking off the dribble he's getting harassed there's fadeaways but if you gave kevin durant steve novak shots he would shoot 68 percent from three-point range you know and so brandon ingram right now just on the way their team is made up I think he's being asked to do more than maybe he's capable of right now but i think he will be capable of doing that at some point it's just sort of he's been being put in an unfair position i mean people forget when durant was you know a first year second year player i mean he was shooting not great from the field basically just chucking shots could not get to the basket because he didn't have the strength you know but all of that will come and you know i think for ingram i you know i'm very high on him and i think he's definitely got a bright future but you know we'll see
0: what about team wise relative to expectations any teams that look better than you thought they would be or maybe worse than you thought they would be to date yeah you know for
1: me i i'm very curious how philly ends up you know i i didn't know what to expect from ben simmons but just seeing him early on i think you know we're, we're gonna be pleasantly surprised by how well they do you know obviously a lot rests on joel and health but i can't remember a time seeing a guy like ben simmons come into the league and being so immediately skilled and strong and just having such a high iq i mean he's we'll look back On this season, I think, and easily consider him rookie of the year. A, B, sure looks like it. Yeah, B, you know, borderline all star by the end. I mean, there's just he has that just instinctive understanding of how to throw passes with the right weight, which is can be really tough. You know, I mean, there was a left hand whip pass he threw to the right corner in the game the other night, um, which is just like people can't make that pass, but he can. You know, and there it's just moments like that. You know, really get me thinking. Well, he's going to be a trans player and assuming he stays healthy what's going to stop him from really developing quickly for this year and you consider the the you know side side pieces they have on that roster Dario sarah or robert covington's these are good nba players and you look at other teams with a one-star foundation and then a bunch of role players who have done considerably well across the league i mean that's the formula they're looking at and then anything you get from a beat is now a huge bonus so i know they're young and everyone says oh they need time to grow but i mean if you're good you're good and they're pretty good i think and i think they're gonna exceed expectations this year
0: yeah if joel stays healthy all year i think you're, you're right part of the reason i was a little lower on them, I picked them for 36 wins, which was well below what their Vegas over-under was. was just I didn't trust, necessarily, the health. And, and I mean, considering that, it looks like I mean, they might just get nothing from Markel Fultz all year, which is, is, would really be a shame. But Simmons, to me, his scoring has been the most impressive. I think that he—I didn't expect that he would be able to get to the rim and just create as many shots as he's been able to with basically having no jumper whatsoever.
1: Yeah, no, totally. And I think it's the same thing we talked about with John. John. John Wall being able to beat guys to the other side of the screen. The difference is, while John Wall can beat you with quickness to that point, Ben Simmons doesn't need to beat you with quickness. He just needs to get on your hip, and he's so big and strong that once you're on his hip, you've essentially lost the battle. So you have to stay completely in front, but he has enough quickness with his size to get there and then the strength and the length to hold you off. So again, not being able to shoot isn't hurting him as
0: much. Any teams that you're maybe a little worried about so far? Um, I,
1: I, this is going to sound dumb, but Golden State a little bit, just because the way they're defending right now. You know, obviously we know them as being so switchy, and you know they just switch everything and no problem. But I see a sort of like lackadaisicalness to the way they execute that. You know, one of my favorite things that they used to do is, um, you know, a bunch of teams run an action called strong, which is basically <clears throat> the four is the trail man at the top of the key, and the the one brings it in at the right or left side, and you go one to four to three across. And then the four and the one go set a, a stagger, which is a double screen for the uh, the two in the corner where the ball ri- originally came from. So teams will run that, and then they just go switch, switch, switch on the stagger, and there was nothing you can do that. And there were a couple plays I've seen where guys are getting loose for threes, and it's just there's this tightness to their switching that's not as good. And I'm not really sure where that comes from. I mean, they don't really have that many new pieces. Um, you know, a couple, obviously. Uh, Nick Young and Omri uh, Caspian, whatever. But I- I'm a little concerned because that is, again, and like a mental game plan mistake that just doesn't, you know, it has nothing to do with their ability and it's why are they not being sharp from the beginning? Maybe it's some, you know, hey, we won the championship, we can lock in later. But in my experience as a coach, when it starts off that way, teams don't typically improve in that sense. You know, maybe they will, of course, and you know, other outliers, of course, but the Tony yeah, said They were at the terrible at yeah. the
0: start of last year. Right. They no, were for terrible sure. defensively at the start of last year. People forget that and, and they managed to get to be pretty close to number one by the end. I, I think, you know, Steve Kerr probably point to China the championship hangover the fact that this is maybe the shortest offseason that any team has ever had because they, they started so early because of that China thing and with this being such an, a uh you know the preseason now being shorter the season starting earlier but I agree with you I think they they've been really bad the one that stuck stuck out to me was you know you talked about how they did a pretty good job of defending those small small pick and rolls with Steph Curry's man as a screener against Cleveland and they really avoided a lot of times Steph getting switched onto LeBron James but then in that first game against houston and draymond was out too which probably didn't help matters and so was iguodala but you know the steph curry got switched on to james harden every single time you know they never were able to avoid it they were trying to like pre-switch it it didn't work and so it was uh, i agree with you i think they'll come around but i think to date certainly like i mean they have just not been anywhere close to what they were at the end of last year
1: yeah i mean you're just you're really just playing with fire when you when you start off that way um you know it can be hard to break out of a bad habit you know it's it's always easier as a coach to be tough and loose and up as the season goes on as opposed to start out loose and then toughen up right because a player is always going to test you to your furthest boundary so you know if you keep lowering the boundary as opposed to increasing the boundary right you'll have a better chance but so for me if you're you know obviously Steve Kerr has earned a ton of trust with being able to get his group together but yeah you know it's you know that's a thing where I wouldn't be surprised if they had a meeting early in the year where they just stamp this out where Kerr just says hey you know enough enough of this you know get it together right now because if you don't then you set in a tone and especially now if you look at their second unit defenders you know Pat McCaw Nick Young you know if you have a a lineup with McCaw Nick Young and Steph Curry as the opposing coach my eyes are lighting up you know I'm going at all three of those guys you know and I know everyone says Curry can defend this and that but there's a reason why teams keep trying to switch their primary ball handler uh, to having Curry guard him right he's learned to compensate by pressuring the ball and having very quick hands but ultimately if you get a quarter of a step on Curry he doesn't have the strength to stay in front of most point guards so you know and then Nick Young obviously has never been a good defender and Pat McCaw is again he's you know a young guy like 180 pounds soaking wet like Okara White but he doesn't have the motor that an Okara White has so you know I trust his IQ defensively but sometimes basketball is just a I can beat you and I'm gonna go at you and there's nothing you can do about it and so that 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 kind of stuff worries me a little bit
0: yeah I think actually McCaw to me is a pretty good like one two defender maybe even more of a one defender like Kyrie cooked him but he's had some good moments against like Damian Lillard but you're right I mean he's not a guy who's just like super intense or physical. I mean, he's got good length and good hands, but it's interesting. I'm a little bit higher on him defensively. It sounds like than you are. um All right, last question here. Any coaching trends that you've noticed e- either this season or in the past couple of years? You know, beyond the obvious stuff like playing smaller and shooting more threes. I mean, you mentioned a few with Brad Stevens, but anything that stuck out to you in terms of evolution or new stuff that you've seen this year?
1: Yeah, you know, the biggest thing that I would say in the last you know five or six years is teams pushing the ball uh, to the side of the floor on pick and rolls you know really icing everything um, and even in, so basically when you ice a pick and roll you as a ball handler as as the man guarding the ball handler you get up into the body of the ball handler you shift your feet so now your body is facing the sideline and you guide the ball down towards the corner um, now the rule in previous years for most teams has been if you're on the outside of the slots and the slot is just the lane line uh, extended out like towards half court so basically if you in the outer thirds of the court, right. you ice the ball. Now teams you even see um, they'll they'll ice it in the middle of the floor and they'll push it one way. Sometimes teams are called strong and weak. So if you're weaking it, you're sending it to the guys weak uh, left side, and then if you're stronging it, you're sending it to the right. Um, it's why you have all these um, like one syllable names for coverages, so it's easy to repeat multiple times, right? So you say yeah. ice 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 ice. You can say that real quick, real fast. Um, but what teams are doing now is a lot more. You have a lot of picking and popping, um, and so they're uh, the the typical way you guard that is you have a guy from the weak side stunt at the popper so he just basically fakes guarding him for a second and then runs back to his man well teams are now having the guy who's being guarded by the stunter dive to the rim or re-space out to the three-point yeah. line. So when the stunter comes back, he's lost track of his guy. And so there's really been a, a, a smart evolution offensively of how to deal with all this icing. It's really, you see this reverberating back and forth. You know, hey, we can't guard ISO guys, so you know Tom Thibodeau is like, okay, we're going to overload that side of the floor, and we're going to force the ball to one side of the floor. And then other teams say, okay, you're going to do that. Now we're going to get guys who can pass going to throw into the post and have them throw skip passes to the weak side. And then defense say, okay, and well now we're going to make you post up and we're not going to help because we think posting up is inefficient. Say, oh, okay, you're not going to let us post. Okay, we're just going to run a ton of pick and rolls and spread it out. Oh, you're going to run pick and rolls, then we're going to do this, right? So it's just constantly back and forth. And so right now, I think the offense is starting to learn how to gain that advantage back.
0: I think, and maybe this, I I haven't charted this or anything, that we're seeing less drop coverage, maybe because there aren't as many as centers who need that or are really good at that but like the Warriors were a perfect example right they started playing drop coverage like they did with Bogut with Pachulia and West last year and then guys are able to just get ahead of steam and go by them and finish at the rim and there's if you're doing drop coverage there's so much shooting now that if you have a if you don't have really an elite rim protecting center the guy can just get ahead of steam and go at your center and finish because there's not really any more help that's there everyone has to stay home on the weak side and so it seems like teams are are actually bringing their bigs up closer to the level of the ball on those screens especially middle pick and rolls more. Have you noticed that or am I just kind of anecdotally over uh, overemphasizing that?
1: No, I think that's definitely the case Um, you know I would say when we were uh, doing our pick and roll coverages uh, we preferred what you just said and we called it an aggressive drop so it's you're still uh, taking a vertical drop to the basket where you're backpedaling directly to the rim but you're starting up near the ball so that way you can take away that pull up three or that wide open pull up too and I think you know there's been this idea that oh we got to take efficient shots only threes layups free throws etc but those shots aren't open if you can't hit mid-range shots if your ball handler can't come off come off a ball screen and knock down a 17 wide open 17 footer then those other shots aren't going to be available to you so you know I think teams are getting better at hitting those mid-range shots which is forcing a change in coverage and then the combo of that is the Kyle Lowry is the Steph Curry is the James Hardings who can pull it from three as well and so you know I do Agree with you. It's sort of the combo of you know less bigs who really have to drop, but I think also part of it is just you know teams are realizing that you know we we have to be up there on the coverage or else we're going to get beaten. And one of the things we always said was when you're in that aggressive drop as a big, your job is stay with the ball. And we basically said if you want to throw it to the roller and hit the roller for pocket passes for dunks and whatever, have a blast. You know, good luck trying it. We trusted our big to be able to have high hands and, and guard that, and then the guard who is fighting over top the screen to get back in front to allow our big to recover but the big job was stay with the ball you know and if you want to get a couple roll dunks a game like okay but most of the time you're not going to be able to hit that pass because it's not an easy pass a and b now there's such a tendency to look to the three-point line the teams ignore rollers so if you're going to ignore the roller we're going to ignore the roller too now sort of the mentality we took toward it
0: yeah and that's why having a guy who can like go up and get that for a dunk is so valuable yep. too right because now it's just like throwing a bounce pass to that guy especially if i mean you have like an a window real early to get the guy in the pocket pass where you can kind of bounce it out in front of him he can catch it at the foul line and and like roll right in for the dunk but if you miss that then he kind of gets down there and it's like all right you're gonna throw him a bounce pass well then there's plenty of time for the help to get there and then you know he's got a body on him he's trying to finish it around the rim if you can just lob it up to him it makes it so much easier just to get that guy the ball than just throwing you know like nice fundamental bounce pass or whatever uh oh yeah last thing i want to ask you actually you did something the other day on Twitter which I thought was absolutely fascinating in the second quarter of the Raptors Spurs game where you basically counted every game plan breakdown and obviously you can't do that absolutely perfectly because you're not in the room with them but as you noted a lot of these concepts are, are pretty universal throughout the NBA but you you Scott or you charted basically every point that resulted from defensive mental breakdowns and how many breakdowns there were and I think you know, there was like 15 for San Antonio and like 12 for Toronto in that quarter or something a quarter usually has about 25 five possessions um just in general though like what percentage of the time like what percentage of defensive possessions does like a mental error which is you know just not executing the game plan occur and and what is the difference on that between teams that are really good and teams that are not really that good like what is kind of the spread if you're looking at like what percentage of possessions is there a mental breakdown
1: yeah you know i would probably say 50 percent of possessions have some sort of defensive mental breakdown now you don't get burned on all of them and and some of them um you know really aren't huge deals but you know the difference really is you know a, a mental breakdown is something that I can control independent of what the offense is doing so for instance the, the play I described on Twitter was I can't remember which Spurs player it was but he was driving down the left wing in semi-transition and uh, there was a Danny Green was in the left corner and DeLon Wright was guarding Danny Green in the left corner and the uh, Toronto Raptors defender was sort of hip to hip with uh, uh, the driving Spurs player and there's a cardinal sin in NBA defense is leaving the corner 98% of the time you're not supposed to leave the corner what you do is you stunt at the ball maybe you swipe at it real quick and then you fly back to the corner why I mean obvious reasons the corner three is the easiest three and most of the time you know
0: they're good shooters in the corner
1: well DeLon Wright dove at yeah. the ball and,
0: and it's one pass away too exactly. it's so easy it's for just the guy a quick to, flip. To, to find it if you leave it
1: totally yeah. so DeLon Wright swiped at the ball but got way too tight to the driver and then the Spurs player just threw an easy quick dish to Danny Green and bangs a three All right that had nothing to do with with anything except for DeLon Wright just making a mental mistake. You know, that's not his help. The help on that play is supposed to come from uh, the weak side block defender who's what, what, do what's called trapping the box. And then he meets the driver on the strong side block. That's where that help comes. That way you keep the corner covered. Um, and then on the back side, you have someone sink into that trap the box man's guy. And that, that's sort of how the rotations work. Or, you know, C.J. Miles comes down the court. There's a, a drag is set, which is a transition ball screen. And then the guy who's guarding him goes under and C.J. Miles bangs a three. Right? right you know it's just what are you doing on that possession you know he's a great three-point shooter go over contest you know if a guy beats you one-on-one
0: and, and he's not gonna he's not gonna drive totally. the basket and score and if he right, does so. good on him
1: you know congratulations but you know that's the issue is that you see so many of these little mistakes and as a coach it drives you absolutely nuts I mean it's just you know controllable things that you know happen but everyone's played basketball <laughs> I, I love
0: the tone I'm starting to hear in your voice now now we're getting like the real the real coach tone and just like utter <laughs> disgust <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's it, like i was getting frustrated watching the game and i don't had no you know obviously bias or interest really you know and it's you cut down on these mistakes and you're just saving yourself so many points every game but you know we've all played basketball it's hard you're tired you know you're guarding especially in today's game you're, you have to know what everybody's doing on the floor let's see cross match and transition and you're guarding someone you don't know you know or you're not normally guarding you forget for a second that he's a three-point shooter you go under he bangs a three then the coach you know stares daggers at you and you're like I'm sorry you know but I forgot for a second but that's the difference right a great team knows the opposing personnel I mean on our scouting reports we used to you know we would have our offensive keys our defensive keys our overall keys and we'd have a really in-depth breakdown of every single uh, opposing player broken down into their strengths and their weaknesses and we'd bold the things that like okay if you're gonna remember anything about this guy remember this right and then especially in the NBA where you know you see the same guys year after year you should really know you know but it's tough you play 82 games you're playing a new team every night you know, you're tired, you're traveling. I do get it, you know, but uh, the teams that cut down on those mistakes really save themselves a, a lot. I
0: think one of the things that is very underrated is the effect that just being tired on the court has on your ability mentally to just be locked in, like even just the slightest thought of like, hey, you know, I'm pretty exhausted here. If that creeps in and then you're concentrating on that or just, I mean, I think just physically even like your brain just doesn't work as well when you're tired and you see more of those mental mistakes, maybe even... And just as much as you see, like, all right, you know, I just don't have the energy to get to this spot
1: completely. And that's and that's really the that gets at the heart of how coaches handle substitution patterns, which is like you want to trust your player to tell him, you know, especially if it's a one of your star players to tell you when to take him out or you have a set rotation. But you know, what if it's your star player and you can see, you know, normally he plays till the two minute mark in the first quarter, but you see at the five minute mark, he's just what do you do right is it worth taking him out to save him you know to save himself from making more mistakes or you know do you leave him in and it costs you but you keep that trust right you take a guy out early when you told him before the game i'm gonna take you out at two minutes then you take him out at six minutes you know well if you were a player how would you feel about that right even if you were tired what player volunteers to come out of the game you know, nobody so you know, that, that that's all really tough and that fatigue factor can be huge you know and that's when you get real breakdowns like you said
0: all right well give everyone real quickly your twitter handle and where they can find it, your work which I've been enjoying you've basically been doing an NBA dictionary to explain a lot of this terminology if audio sometimes can't be the best medium for the stuff Dylan does a great job of describing it of course but you know, if you want even more of a supplement to that you can check out your site so where can they find all that
1: uh, so my Twitter is at Dylan T. Murphy and uh, the blog I have is uh, the Basketball Dictionary which is at Dictionary B-Ball and basically it just breaks down a bunch of the terminology we've used uh, on this podcast and uh, you know whether it's NBA set names um, or defensive maneuvers uh, basically just trying to give a language to how coaches and players speak on the floor so when they say things you know I was really happy to, Kevin Durant said trap the box in an interview the other day and I just smiled to myself you know um, not many people know what that means but when you see a rim protector block a shot he's probably trapping the box he just didn't realize it and so that's basically what I'm trying to do with the basketball dictionary is just put names to faces of different actions so um, you know I'm trying to do basically twice a week here but but um, I had prepped about eight posts before I relaunched it this season, and I'm I'm reaching that now. So I'm feverishly working on getting some more done. But they, getting the right film examples can can be exhausting because you know the stupid players don't do things the right way all the time. So, um, but uh, you know, so we'll uh, we'll see how quickly I'm able to pump them out. But Basketball Dictionary is where I have all that stuff. So,
0: all right, man. Well, this was great. We'll have to have you on again soon. Really enjoyed it, and we will talk to you all next time. Till then.